Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're a visitor, it's uh, great to have you. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And as a church, we are studying our way through the Gospel of Mark. So I'd like to ask you to take out a copy of God's Word. I don't care if that's a paper copy or if that's your iPhone copy. It doesn't matter. Turn to Mark chapter 7, verse 31. We're going to read a few verses in that section together. While you're turning there, I have a riddle for you, especially for those Bible trivia buffs out there. Here's the riddle. Who in the Bible was not able to speak, but he was allowed to speak, but once he was able to speak, was not allowed to speak? Does anybody know who that was? I won't keep you in suspense. It's the person we're going to study in this passage. Was not able to speak, but he could speak, but once he was allowed to speak, He wasn't able to speak. And that's actually going to form the outline for our study this morning. So stand out of reverence for God's word. We're going to read Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. I'd ask you to follow along with your eyes in your copy of God's word in front of you as I read it. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. That ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. This is a unique passage of Scripture. It's one of only three passages found exclusively in the Gospel of Mark. It is not told in the other Gospels, and Mark has a very important reason for telling it to us that we're going to see this morning. Incidentally, one of the things I like about what we do as we study the Word of God on Sunday morning is that we work through it consecutively. And we look at from one passage to the next passage. And that's actually pretty important because oftentimes you go to different churches and they just look at a passage vertically. They just pull a passage up, they just drop directly in on it and study it. And there's not necessarily a wrong thing to do, but when you do that, you often miss the connections between that story and the other stories surrounding it. So it's important to look at the stories horizontally as they flow from one to another because Mark or the other gospel writers put their stories in order on a purpose, not just vertically dropping in and studying a particular story. And the importance of our horizontal connection from one story to another will become very important this morning because to understand the meaning of this passage 
and the passage we're going to study next week. You have to look at the passages around it to read it properly. You'll understand more this morning as to why I say that is important. We're going to begin with, first of all, the background to these short verses. And we're going to spend a fair amount of time giving you the background to these verses because there's a lot going on here. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that Jesus has been teaching and doing ministry in the area of Galilee. Now, go ahead and put the map up there, Jeremy. You can see Galilee on the top of your screen. It's by the Sea of Galilee, which is a big lake. It's a freshland, freshwater lake. Uh, if you go south from that, you'll see Samaria. Samaria is actually a Jewish-Gentile mixed area with the Samaritans. And then if you go further south is the area of Judea. The big feature in the southern section of Judea is the city of Jerusalem, which is just a little north and west off the top of this, the Dead Sea down there. Well, the area of Judea and the city of Jerusalem is more of a citified region. The area of Galilee up towards the north is sort of a little bit more of a country bunkin kind of an area. In that area, if you were doing anything, you were usually connected to the lake because the lake is what brought everybody to that area. Very similar to our little piece of geography where the lake sort of brings everybody to this area. In that area, there were literally over a hundred small towns scattered around the Sea of Galilee, which if you think about it is interesting because there's lots of small towns scattered around our lakes as well that are also butted up right next to one another. There's another parallel I thought was interesting. If you were a in the area of the Sea of Galilee, which is more rural, which you were doing is either you were fishing on the lake or you were farming around the lake because the area around the Sea of Galilee was great farmland. Now, what do people do around here? You're either a tourist who came to fish on the lake or you're a farmer who's farming around the lake. So there's a number of parallels between the area that Jesus ministered in for the last year that we're studying and our uh, little piece of geography. The big difference being is they had much nicer winters than we do. Now, Jesus is about ready to leave the area of, of Galilee, and he is going to actually head south in a little bit. He's going to go down to Jerusalem, where he is going to be crucified, buried, and rise from the, from the grave. Go ahead and show us this. This is an artist's depiction of what that southern trip, the final trip of his life, would look like as he went south. But as we learned last week, before he heads south to Jerusalem, he actually heads north. So go ahead and put that other map up, Jeremy. This is the map we used last week. Capernaum is in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee, and you, we study the fact that last week he left with his 12 apostles and headed northwest to the city of Tyre, which is outside of the area of Israel. Tyre is a Phoenician city. It is a hardcore pagan city. And this is an area that many Jews would not travel in. And we asked the question last week, why would Jesus take the initiative to leave the area of 
where the Jews are situated and go to this hardcore pagan area. And we learned there's actually... Whoa. Okay. Don't know where that came from. Happened first service, now it's on second. So I don't know where that came from. But uh, let's go ahead and look at the reasons as to why he left that area. First of all, we know that Jesus was insanely popular in Galilee. Uh, especially after the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually more like 20,000 people. Everybody wanted to be with Jesus. Everybody wanted to talk to Jesus. And everybody wanted some kind of miracle or healing from Jesus. So he could not go anyplace in public without being mobbed. But by he had a bunch of groupies that loved him in that area. He also had the religious leaders who hated him in that area. In Mark chapter 2, we learned they had already decided that they wanted Jesus dead. And when he became extremely popular, they redoubled their efforts to try and get rid of him and to undermine him. So in the area of Galilee, particularly in the area of Capernaum, which was his home base, he was really popular with some people and really despised by other people. So it was a hotbed area where Jesus did not have much time besides having people demand things from him or try and undermine him. But at this point, we have less than a year until Jesus will die on the cross. And one thing Jesus is not having a chance to do is to teach and train his disciples. In particular, his 12 apostles. And that is incredibly important. Because what's going to happen in less than a year is Jesus will be gone. His apostles will be in charge of carrying the gospel message to the world. It's a lot of responsibility. Jesus needs to invest in them. He needs to spend time with them. Interestingly, the Gospel of John tells us in John chapter 14, verse 26, that the Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally enable the apostles to have perfect recollection of everything Jesus taught them so they will be faithful and true witnesses. But if you're going to have perfect recollection of what Jesus taught you, you have to have time for Jesus to teach you. And that is what Jesus is doing. He's heading to these hardcore pagan cities so he'll be left alone so he can work with his apostles. Now, the thing that's important to know is um, going to these pagan cities is not about the destination. It's really more about the trip. If you ever talk to people and you ask them about their summer vacations, you know, you talk to the, the husband, what are you doing for summer vacation? We're going to Mount Rushmore. He's like, we're going to drive all night if we have to. We are going to get to the destination. Isn't that the way we work, guys? We're mission orientated? Yeah, talk to, the, talk to the wife, though. She has a little different perspective. I don't care when we get there. It's just the fact that the family is together and we're making memories. Right, ladies? Am I right? We're together. Ladies, you have Jesus in your corner on this one. Because it's not about where they're going right now. It's more about the fact that Jesus is with his apostles and he's teaching and making memories with his apostles.
If you look at the overall sweep of the Gospel of Mark, you find this sweep that moves from public to private. Jesus, as we saw in the beginning of the Gospel, would teach the crowds, and he taught them publicly. But then once he had his apostles, we come to Mark chapter 4, and all of a sudden Jesus started teaching the public in parables. We, we learned what parables do. Parables are to reveal and to conceal. The parable, when it was taught in public, revealed truth, but Jesus always explained the parables to his apostles in private to reveal the truth. Excuse me, I think I said that backwards. In public, it would conceal the truth, but in private, it would reveal the truth. Now we find he's not teaching the public at all, even in parables. He's just focusing exclusively on his apostles because they will be entrusted with carrying the gospel to the world. Last week, we saw what happened when Jesus arrived in the city of Tyre. He was trying to be undercover and not attract a crowd. We learned, though, that in Mark chapter 3, verse 8, it tells us that while he was doing miracles in the region of Galilee, some people had come down from Tyre to see those miracles. So even in that hardcore pagan city, Jesus was not completely unknown. Some people saw him, some people recognized him and came to him. In particular was one woman who was a Syrophoenician. We studied her last week. She had a serious problem. She had a little daughter who was possessed by a demon. And she knew that J Jesus can cast out demons with just a word. She had tried all the other deities that she would normally worship and nothing had happened. So she came to Jesus and she fell at the feet of Jesus and she begged Jesus to heal her daughter. Last week we learned, though, that she had some barriers to that healing in place. First, we saw it was her background. She was a woman in a, a culture that was very male-orientated. She was also a Canaanite, which were some of the enemies of the Israelites, at least historically. She was a Syrophoenician, which means she came from a Roman background and not a Jewish background. In addition, she came from the city of Tyre, which was one of the premier hardcore pagan cities of the day. She had a terrible background, which had set her up historically as being a woman who should be very far from God. While she had a background working against her, she also had some things in her foreground working against her as well. Jesus explained this to her in a parable, and he told her that the problem is that it is not time for God's grace and salvation yet to be extended to Gentiles, Gentiles like you. Right now, it's time to focus on the Jews. And the parable went this way. He said to her, when you make dinner, you don't feed the dinner to the dogs and then give the leftovers to your children. You feed the dinner to your children and then you give the leftovers to the dogs. There is an order and there is a priority to how God, God's gospel will be extended out. It goes to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So it's not time to do something like cast the demon out of her daughter. While she had her background 
working against her and the foreground of salvation history working against her, she had one thing working for her. It was her attitude. The way she looked at Jesus and the way she approached Jesus. She recognized Jesus as the very son of David. Recognized him as the Messiah. She was completely humble in front of Jesus. She trusted in Jesus alone. And she also believed in Jesus' great compassion. In fact, what we see in this woman, even though she is a pagan Gentile, is one of the best examples of what saving faith looks like in this entire gospel. And we learned, because Jesus cast the demon out of her daughter anyway, that those who place great faith in Jesus receive great mercy from Jesus. It didn't matter what her background was. It didn't matter the obstacles in front of her. When she placed her faith in Jesus, she received mercy from Jesus. And the good news is, is that is a principle that has never changed. I don't care what your background is this morning. I don't care what you have done or how far from God you have gone. I don't care what obstacles are in front of you that would seem to keep you away from God. Whenever you place your faith in Jesus, you will receive mercy from Jesus. That was true then, and it's just as true now. Amen? Amen. This morning, we continue the story. Jesus now leaves the city of Tyre. It says in Mark 7, 31, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Jeremy, can you throw that back up there, the map? So we were at the city of Tyre, the southern of the two cities. Jesus decides to go north 20 miles to another Phoenician city called Sidon. Now, what did Jesus do there? Did he heal anybody there? We don't know. The Bible doesn't record anything that happened there. Maybe nothing significant happened there because remember, Jesus is trying to focus on being with his disciples, training his disciples. He's trying to stay out of the public eye at this point. Then Jesus returned from there and he went south. Ultimately, he went all the way around to the southeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. Now, is this exactly the route that Jesus followed? Honestly, we don't know. That's just an artist's guess of the path he took. I mean, maybe he went north and didn't go south again. Maybe he went north and made a big horseshoe. That would seem to be more logical to me, but whatever he did, he returned to the Sea of Galilee in the um, southeastern portion. We learned last week that Matthew chapter 15 gives us a roughly parallel account of what is happening here, though it has a lot less detail, but it does provide some crucial details that help us to envision how things unfolded. Matthew chapter 15 tells us how this trip ended when he went to the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. It says, He went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. 
Jesus did not go to any of the Greek city-states of the Decapolis that is in that area. He went, it says, right to the edge of the Sea of Galilee, climbed a mountain, and sat down, probably to take a good rest. Because if you add this all up, they have just walked 120 to 150 miles. And I would need a rest after that, and I think so would you. Now here is where it gets interesting. And I told you the horizontal relationship between stories is very important to understand. Some of you may actually have Bibles that'll say that this man that we're about ready to study was a Gentile. And it'll also say in the heading of your Bible that the feeding of the 4,000 we're going to study next week were, was, an, was also Jesus feeding the Gentiles. And I thought about that when I was studying this, and I said, well, this doesn't seem to make sense to me. I don't know if that rings true, because Jesus made a very big deal last week about it not being time for the Gentile ministry to begin with the Syrophoenician woman. Why would he turn around and all of a sudden heal literally hundreds of people in the background this week and then miraculously feed thousands of people in the background next week if they're both Gentiles. Because last week he said it's not time for that ministry to begin. The Syrophoenician woman was an exception. So at that point I was really scratching my head and getting nervous for Sunday while it was still Monday. So I have about a dozen scholarly resources that I can reference as I'm preparing for messages. I don't reference them all every week, but this was a week I'm going to go as far as I can. And I found out very interesting. What I found out is half of my resources claim that uh, these are Gentiles, and it's a continuation of Jesus' Gentile ministry. The other half of my resources say, no, this is a return to Jews, and this is not part of the Gentile ministry. So I felt really sort of stuck because half go one way and half go the other way. Uh, I'll tell you at the moment where I'm at. At the moment, I think this is a return to the Jews and the Jewish ministry, which for some of you may go against the headings in your Bible. The good part is I have my best scholarship articles that I have on this passage agree with me. So I feel a little better. But here are some reasons to point that out to you. In the Bible, whenever Jesus seems to be working with someone of another descent, like the Syrophoenician woman, it identifies that person as being a Gentile or coming from another descent. If he's working with Jews, their descent is not identified. Secondly, what we find here is if these were a continuation of the Gentile ministry and he's going to heal and do miracles for thousands, it breaks the logical sequence of what is being stated last week to the Syrophoenician woman. The other thing I think that is very interesting for you to know is when we looked at Matthew, he stayed right by the edge of the Sea of Galilee. Jeremy, can you throw this up? We've used this map a few weeks ago. The Decapolis, as you can see, is actually a really large piece of geography. Where is Jesus? He's in the northwest corner right next to the Sea of Galilee. Last night, 
I was really thinking about this. I have to preach this today, and I'm trying to do as much last-minute research as I could. So I did historical research on the Decapolis as I'm laying in bed with my wife telling me to turn off my phone. And what I found is in around 100 to 70 B.C. before Christ, that northern section uh, by the Sea of Galilee was actually controlled by the Hasmonean Jewish dynasty. And it was filled with Jews. Also discovered that around 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed and there was a great rebellion against Jews, there were large amounts of Jews killed in this area. So it means that in this area that is by the Sea of Galilee, there is a very large Jewish population. And it is highly likely that this is a return to his Jewish ministry. And I point that out because some of you may recognize the tension that exists between these stories if this is a continuation of the Gentile ministry. And I wanted to be able to resolve that for you. Now, when Jesus comes into this area, one thing is apparent. Even though it doesn't seem like he's been there before, people recognize him. People start bringing their sick to him for Jesus to heal them. You may wonder, why does everybody in this section seem to know about Jesus? Do you remember Mark chapter 5? Remember a guy named the Gadarean demoniac? how Jesus sailed by night to the other side of the lake. He was met by a demon-possessed maniac when he showed up on the shore. He cast the demons out of him, plural, because there were literally a legion, thousands of demons in him, cast them out into a herd of swine. The swine went into the water, and then the man said, can I please go back with you? Can I be disciple or apostle number 13? was his request. Jesus said, no, I want you to stay on this side of the lake and tell people what I have done for you. So a little bit less than a year, this guy has been functioning as a missionary up and down this, this shore of the Sea of Galilee, telling everybody what Jesus did for him. And when Jesus shows up, that's why everybody knows Jesus recognizes Jesus and wants to be with Jesus. There we go. In fact, this is what happens when he shows up. Matthew chapter 15 tells us, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So at this time, there are literally hundreds of people that show up to be healed. Jesus heals them, and I hope they're Jews because if they're Gentiles, once again, this is back to the problem we talked about of the horizontal relationship between the stories. The guy we're going to look at this morning is just one of those people who has shown up to be healed. And the first thing we find about him is he begins unable to speak. Mark chapter 7, verse 32. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on them. So this man does not come by himself. Apparently he has some family, he has some friends that care about him, and they bring him to Jesus. But I don't think he has too many friends. Because he was a deaf mute. 
So nobody could talk to him because he couldn't hear. And then he didn't have the ability to speak, so he couldn't communicate back. So every single thing for this guy's entire life was a game of charades, which doesn't mean you usually have really great friends at that point because they can't communicate with you. Now, at this point, I would normally go to this 33rd verse, but I forgot to type it in your outline, so I'm going to read it out of the text. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Jesus doesn't want to just do mass healings, like everybody's a number. You notice how Jesus takes him aside privately and gives this guy attention, face-to-face attention. And then Jesus is going to do a bunch of touching of this guy. Why do you think he touches him? Some people think it's part of the magical way of Jesus doing his miracle. I don't think so. We've already seen that Jesus can cast out thousands of demons with just speaking a word. Jesus can heal people over a distance with just speaking a word. Jesus doesn't need to touch him. Jesus is choosing to touch him. But why? Here's the answer. Jesus is making up his own sign language to communicate with this guy. It's sort of like a game of charades so we can get a message to this man who can't hear and can't speak. Jesus takes his fingers and puts them in the man's ears. I know what your problem is. You cannot hear. And then Jesus spits and touches his tongue. I know what your problem is. You can't get the words out of your mouth. You cannot speak. Speak. Incidentally, if somebody goes deaf when they're very young, usually sub-age two, what you find is they also become a mute because they cannot speak words because they have never heard words. So this man has been deaf from a very young age, possibly even from birth itself. So his attempt at language is simply a bunch of grunts and hisses and whines. That's all he can do. And then the sign language continues. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. Looking up to heaven is a universal sign language, isn't it? You go like this in public. What does everybody know you're referencing? referencing God. God answered by prayer, right? You can't hear. You can't speak. God cares about that. And the care part, he sighs. The guy knows God cares about you and that you cannot hear and speak. And then Jesus says to him, Ephratha, which means be opened which as far as we can tell is he speaks one word in Aramaic. That's all it is. And everything changes instantly. He is completely, totally, and instantly healed. So this man was first unable to speak. The next point in our outline is he is now able to speak. Verse 35. 
and his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Jesus, with one word, created instant, completely perfect eardrums in that man's head so he could hear. Literally, it says his tongue was released. The Greek says the chains were taken off his tongue so he could speak clearly. This may not sound like that impressive of a miracle until you think about it for a little bit and realize the implications of what Jesus did. In that moment, this man did not for the first time hear sounds. For the first time in his life, he heard words. But Jesus had also in that moment supernaturally implanted into the man's brain complete comprehension of the meaning of the words he heard. Do you see that? He had never heard language before. Now he could completely understand language, not just hear the language. And when it came to speaking, he didn't just have the ability to speak a word, but it says he spoke this word plainly. He spoke clearly. He had never spoken a word before in his life. And now he had the language in his head and could speak it well. The word for plainly in the text is the Greek word ortho. I think the word in English plainly is a little bit understated to describe what actually happened in the Greek Ortho, we get that word for orthopedics or orthodontist. It's to take what is out of line and put it back in alignment so it's perfect and straight. The idea is the words that he could speak in that moment were perfectly clear. He spoke with perfect grammar. He got up that morning having never heard a word having never spoken a word and to no comprehension of language in his head, Jesus said one word and he could hear and understand and speak with complete and total grammar, clarity, and perfection. He could teach language class after being healed by Jesus. That is how good Jesus' healings are. Now, think about this. Has anybody here ever studied a foreign language? How long do you have to study to learn one? Years. And that is just to read it. And then it's even harder to speak it and to go to that country and have conversations in it. But Jesus supernaturally put that in this man's brain instantly. In fact, as you start to reflect back on Jesus' miracles... All of them have this superabundant, perfect, great quality to them. Remember the lame man who had never walked and Jesus healed him? He didn't just get the ability to move his legs, but Jesus, when he healed him, instantly gave him complete strength in his life, legs, so much strength that he picked up his bed and carried it home. Some of you couldn't pick up your bed even now. But Jesus' healing of the lame man was that complete. So he wasn't able to speak. Now he's healed with just a word and he's completely able to speak and he's really good at speaking. But now he's not allowed to speak. 
And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. It wasn't just this man talking about what Jesus had done for him, but his friends who had brought him also couldn't stop talking about what Jesus had done for him. Now you wonder, why did Jesus want this man to be quiet? There's a variety of explanations, but I think it's really simple. We know that in previous miracles, in fact, there's three of them prior to this, where Jesus healed somebody and then told them to be quiet about it. Because when they went out and told people what Jesus had done for them, people came to Jesus, but they often came for the wrong reasons. They came because they were groupies. They came because they were spectators. They came to be entertained by Jesus, not to actually want to find salvation from Jesus. They would often come for the wrong reasons, which is why Jesus said, why don't you be quiet about it? But, as you can imagine, this guy who's now talking for the first time can't stop talking. He is like a teenage girl after a can of Red Bull. It just doesn't end. In fact, they said this, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This phrase, astonished beyond measure, is only used here in the Bible. And it's very difficult to translate into English because it is filled with so many superlatives in the Greek. They are completely, totally, utterly, beyond belief, blown away by what Jesus has done. Not just by the miracles of what he's done, but by the perfection and completeness of the miracles that he did. Remember, implanting language ability into a brain, not just healing eardrums and loosening tongues. If you think about it, this is the way, as I said before, Jesus does all of his miracles. He does them totally and completely, beyond measure, fully. Like those who had leprosy. They had their skin restored to the smoothness of a newborn baby. As I said before, the lame, they could walk and carry things because they had so much strength after he healed them. Now, Mark doesn't usually do this, but he does something special in this little story that is unique to him. He doesn't usually create connections to the Old Testament because his audience are Gentiles. But in this story, he creates two very strong and important connections. These connections are only found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that the Gentiles would read. Here's the first one. Can you think of any other time in the Old Testament where just with a word something was created Instantly, completely, and absolutely perfectly. Out of nothing. Can you say Genesis? Remember the creation story? Here's what is interesting. The words that are used here, when it says, he did all things well, in the Greek translation, in the Septuagint, it talks about the creation story. After it has been created in the six days, it says, and all of creation was done well. 
the exact same Greek. Now let me just show you what it looks like in the, in the English, which is actually based off the Hebrew, so it reads slightly differently, but it's the same idea. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And what we find is that Jesus, the one who did the miracles perfectly, completely, and instantly in response to a word, is the same creator who made creation perfectly, completely, and instantly in response to a word. Think about this. Adam and Eve, when they were created, they had language, comprehension to understand it, and comprehension to speak it, planted in their brain, just like this man. See the parallels? The other clue that comes from the Septuagint, as you read this, is the Greek word for mutism. It's mogilion. That word is a very rare word in all of Greek language. For some reason, Mark chose to use this very rare word for mutism in this story. But here's the neat connection. The word is so rare that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it also only occurs in one place. It occurs in Isaiah chapter 35, which is the pivot chapter in Isaiah. In Isaiah 35, it talks about the arrival of the Messiah and how you can recognize him. And when he comes, he will do miracles, but the miracles he do will be well done. Let's look at what it says in Isaiah 35. And he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer. See that superabundant, complete healing? And the tongue of the mute, that's the same word right there that ties in with Mark chapter 7, will be able to sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Isaiah says, how can you recognize the Messiah when he comes? His miracles. And his miracles will be well done. Just like the creation was well done. Perfectly, completely, and instantly. Now you may say, well, how does this affect me? Here's where it gets exciting. If you think Jesus' healing miracle, miracles are well done, you need to know that Jesus' saving miracle of you and me on the cross is also well done. In fact, it's even better done than any of his earthly healing miracles were. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, his payment for sin that he gave to you and me when we accept him is so complete, so full, that we cannot outsin the grace of God. He did 100%. He paid for all of our sin. And even if we fall back into sin, it is still paid for. He didn't do 90% and we do 10%. He did all of it. We just receive it by faith because his saving miracle is so well done. Not only that, 
But when he saved us from our sin, he didn't just restore us to a place of neutrality like Adam and Eve were before they fell into sin, but he restored us to a place of great honor. The Bible says that we are now adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. We are given the most exalted position in the universe with Jesus and under Jesus and all because of Jesus. Because when he saved us, it is so well done. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that one day he will resurrect our bodies from the grave. And the bodies that he resurrects from the grave will not be just restored to the position of Adam and Eve's body before sin to live a long time. But our bodies will be just like Jesus Christ's resurrection bodies that will live forever, that'll be known for strength, that'll be known for power because we will have a body just like Jesus because his saving miracle is so well done. In creation, the Bible says that one time this planet was perfect before sin came into it. When Jesus, he will not just take our planet and strip sin from it, but the Bible says that heaven and earth will be combined in the future and the dwelling place of God will be with man it'll be far better than it ever was because Jesus' saving miracle is so well done you know Jesus' healing miracles were so well done and he was famous for that but the saving miracle that he's extended to you and me is well done as well and it is far better than any healing miracle we may read in the scriptures. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we are going to have the elements passed out, during that time, we're going to be singing uh, a song. And the song is called, O Come to the Altar, the Father's Arms Are Open Wide. Forgiveness has been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus' saving miracle, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. And when you're singing that song, O Come to the Altar, I invite you to sing from the bottom of your heart with praise, worship, and adoration to Jesus Christ for the saving miracle he has done for us. And it's so incredibly well done, more than we ever could deserve. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for doing all things well. Thank you for when you made creation, you did it well, perfectly, completely, and instantly. Thank you in your healings, you did them well, instantly, perfectly, comprehensively. But most of all, we thank you for your saving miracle, which you have given us through your Son, Saving which is so comprehensive to forgive all of our sin. Saving which is so comprehensive to make us the most blessed beings in the universe with you and under you. A comprehensive saving that will give us a new body that will last forever on a new creation that is far better than anything we could ever enjoy today. Thank you, Jesus, for doing all things well. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. 
Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.